Welcome to Poetry Lectures, a series of lectures by poets, scholars, and educators, presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, Jahan Ramazani presents examples of non-European post-colonial poetry that relate to the language of song, prayer, law, and post-colonial theory. Jahan Ramazani is professor of English at the University of Virginia, where he teaches modern and contemporary poetry and post-colonial literature. He is the author of A Transnational Poetics and the editor of the most recent edition of the Norton Anthology of Modern and Contemporary Poetry. In this program, Ramazani looks at post-colonial poetry written in English by poets from Africa, Asia, and the Caribbean, and examines the language of this work not in comparison with American and European poetry, but in comparison with non-literary language. Poetry and song lyrics have always been related, but for a new twist, Ramazani presents the work of Patience Agbabi, which reflects the rhythm and wordplay of rap lyrics. For its relation to the language of prayer, Ramazani turns to the work of Kashmiri poet Aga Shahid Ali. As an example of poetry and the language of law, Ramazani offers the book-length poem Zong by Norbesi Philip, which is based on a legal decision regarding the drowning of slaves. He begins with Norbesi Philip's Discourse on the Logic of Language and discusses how that work relates to the language of post-colonial theory. Here is Jahan Ramazani. Like post-colonial fiction and drama, poetry written by non-European peoples of Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, and the Pacific uh, has fundamentally redrawn the map of literature in English, though it seems to me that poetry studies has been somewhat slow to catch up with this um, momentous change. Um, but the question for postcolonial studies, still unresolved it seems to me, is what difference poetry makes. Um, how does poetry construct the postcolonial, and how do we get at the poetry of postcolonial poetry? What I want to argue this afternoon um, is uh, that postcolonial uh, post poetry specificities as poetry are best illuminated paradoxically by um, looking at its dialogic intersections with other genres. Examining several ambiguous uh, interdiscursive spaces where poetry merges with its others, I want to ask what distinguishes postcolonial poetry, and perhaps poetry more generally for, from such kindred discourses as theory, law, song, and prayer, even as it draws on them. Despite our received conception of poetry as rel relatively closed and homogeneous, uh, in Bakhtin's vivid model, model um, a unitary and singular Ptolemaic world outside of which nothing else exist, exists and nothing else is needed, Right, that's Bakhtin on on poetry. So, a very vivid uh, model. But I want to ask um, how poetry, in terms that Bakhtin brilliantly otherwise deploys, dialogizes quote literary and extra literary languages, intensifying and hybridizing them. That is, how do postcolonial poets write poems blended with theory, while nevertheless doing something different from it? Testimonial poems that nevertheless don't belong in a court of law. Poems intercut with song lyrics that aren't quite songs. Prayerful poems that aren't religious texts. So um, 
Let me start with theory then. Um, theory is the genre that's garnered perhaps the most attention in postcolonial studies, so I think it's appropriate to start there, um, not only under the, 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 the field's holy trinity of Saeed, Spivak, and Bava, but otherwise. Uh, Tobago-born, Trinidad-raised, Toronto-based writer, familiar to all of you since she was recently here, uh, Nurbesi Phillips' uh, poem, Discourse on the Logic of Language, shares, as its abstract title suggests, in the widespread postcolonial theorization of the colonizer's violently imposed language as leaving the postcolonized subject verbally wounded and struggling to give utterance to a non-European experience. It was Quoting here, it was in language that the slave was perhaps most successfully imprisoned by his master, the Barbadian poet Kamau Brathwaite speculates, and it was in his misuse of it that he perhaps most effectively rebelled. Now, countless essays and books have discoursed upon such linguistic maiming and revolt. But just as traditional lyrics expound on the paradoxes of death and desire without being reducible to that thematic content, I think we need to ask what's distinctively poetic about how Philip's poem gives expression to this familiar theoretical concept. What can can, um, poetry do that theory per se can't? So returning to the beginning of this, um, the reliance on the copula is in the poem's first two sentences, seems to me, highlights its incorporation of definitional and analytic discourse. But this declarative language quickly devolves into stutters and slips. Instead of merely stating that the European language both impedes and enables expression, the poet shows this paradoxically expressive deformation in sentences that fracture grammatically and words that splinter into puns. The phrase foreign land shows up the language's alienness in a colonized land, and the ensuing lines tease the words languish and anguish out of the imposed language. The poet's dissolving of the English language and of the very word language into words expressive of that language's injuries exemplifies postcolonial subversion of the imperial standard. Uh, And she does this in a number of other ways. Dumb-tongued to dub-tongued would be another instance of this. Seemingly impeded from univocal statements by the language through which she seeks expression, Philip uses signature resources of poetry, recursive sounds, uh, wordplay, enjambments, flexible syntax, relative freedom for grammatical norms, and invents forms that enact the postcolonial imprisonment within and transvaluative misuse of an imposed English. Obviously, all of this is assuming here that um, poetry is that genre in, in which form and content are perhaps least separable from one another. Uh, The poem continues in this vein um, with these columns and these different discourses intersecting. And in the second edict, we get a similar statement um, on the next page. Every slave caught speaking, or perhaps I should say, every slave caught speaking his native language shall be severely punished where necessary removal of the tongue is recommended The offending organ, when removed, should be hung on high in a central place so that all may see and tremble. Philip's juxtaposition of various typefaces makes materially visible the pressure on the poetic text of surrounding scientific, legal, and naturalist discourses. Typographic and visual details that, especially in poetry, contribute abundantly to the signifying processes. 
Her lineated poetic text, English is my mother tongue, is flanked in the left-hand margin by a vertically printed prose description of a newborn child, tongued clean by her mother, a description that reinforces the poetic literalization of mother tongue. In the right-hand margins, the poet prints two edicts, including the threat and removal of the tongue and its monetary display, historically contextualizing the speaker's longing for an absented mother tongue, her estrangement from the very language she's using, and her aggressive ringing of unexpected meanings and puns out of these words. On the last page, the discourse of scientific knowledge takes the form of multiple-choice questions about the tongue, except that unexpected counter-discourses interrupt as when a man's tongue is defined in, say, the second group as an organ of A, taste, B, speech, or C, oppression and exploitation. Right? Which one does not fit here in a normal, uh, in a normal sequence? And uh, in the last group, uh, spoken words are said to require A, facial movements, B, a mother tongue, or C, the overseer's whip, or all or none of the above. The imaginative deviations and leaps of poetry have been allowed to disrupt the neutral sheen of science's abstract language here. At the same time, as as we've observed, Philip incorporates within her lineated poetic texts the analytic discourse of postcolonial theories, conceptualization of language in relation to oppressed and marginal subjects. Even as the poem sharply separates separates out the poetic text from its generic others, it nevertheless also provides evidence of the cross-generic contamination of poetry by its others, by its generic others. Now, except for language poetry, theory and poetry are often thought of as being irreconcilable opposites, lyric particularity and feeling as against inhuman abstraction. But poets such as Philip um, ask us to think, I think, about the complex ways in which postcolonial poetry perhaps like some other contemporary poetic modes, both is and is not its theoretical other. So just teasing you there with some ideas about um, poetry and theory, I want to move on to the second section, poetry and law. Um, Along with its interfusions with theory, Philip's poetry, perhaps not surprisingly given her training and seven-year practice as a lawyer, also sometimes intersects with law. Law and poetry, she's written, quote, both share an inexorable concern with language, the right use of the right words, phrases, or even marks of punctuation. Precision of expression is the goal shared by both. The language of her book-length poetic sequence, Zong, is drawn almost entirely from uh, a 1783 legal decision, Gregson v. Gilbert, rendered when um, owners of the slave ship Zong sued for insurance damage after about 150 slaves were thrown overboard to their death. Uh, In the legal decision, the slaves are assumed to be property. The captain's action, Amir, and this is, uh, again, from the actual text, the captain's action, a mere throwing overboard of goods, in part to save the residue. While Philip acknowledges lang- uh, legal language's desire for precision, she also sees the legal report of Gregson v. Gilbert and quoting her masquerading as order, logic, and rationality. Uh, that is part of a, uh, of a discourse that as she also puts it, promulgated uh, the non-being of African peoples. Um, It's order hiding disorder. It's logic hiding 
the illogic. And as you'll see in the little uh, snippet I've given you in the handout, um, she follows, again, the def definitional and hierarchical language of law, but ends just this little snippet here um, with the word murder. Um, and I found this fascinating because it's a word that's used only when you read the decision, only metaphorically in the decision. She's like, my God, uh, you know, uh, in the Gregson decision. And, and she, uh, I think, wonderfully reveals it almost as a kind of Freudian slip um, that uh, acknowledges the nature of the atrocity while trying to suppress it at the same time. She intercalates the calm order of legal language with her poetry's gaps and perturbations, its inverted hierarchies and disruptive energies to unmake that precise order from within. Her poem recognizes its family resemblance to the law, but by energetically rearranging, deranging laws, a sensibly rational language, it reveals the ordered madness sometimes concealed by law's seemingly authoritative logic. Like Philip's poetic sequence, Jamaican poet Lorna Goodison's Annie Pengeli is permeated by uh, legal discourse, even as it, too, defines its difference from the law. Annie Pengeli, we learn, uh, is the pseudonym of an enslaved Jamaican girl forced by her unhappy, lovelorn mistress um, to lie draped, heaped across her feet, a human blanket, and keep her warm in the cold of winter. When the insomniac mistress sang and danced, she commanded Annie to applaud. She kept Annie awake by sticking her with a pin, slapping her, or worst of all, making her cut up to throw away piles of old newspaper, dubbed by the poet the paper torture. So the poem at first plays along uh, with the conventions of trial law, as I think we'll see. And I, and I hope you've gotten a sense already, again, how she's obviously playing along with those legal conventions, but also here doing a lot of interesting things, such as code switching into a kind of non-standard diction, right? This need that cause, an inflected creolized verb there, um, long history scene setting, uh, much longer, obviously, than the time horizons you'd normally have in a, a court of law when she goes back to the Middle Passage. And so running counter to law's uh, formality, anti-digressive narrative methods, and foreshortened time horizons. The judge's voice echoes in the poet-lawyer's repetition and address. In what we saw toward the bottom of that first column, you are telling me to proceed and proceed swiftly. Why have I come here representing Annie? But the poem, while evoking through dramatic monologue the oral give and take of a trial, refuses the judge's demand for narrative linearity, for what have been called law's, uh, quote, institutional requirements of brevity and relevance, and, of course, the law's customary injunction to tell nothing but the truth. The speaker, it turns out, has been telling and yet slyly refusing to tell the plaintiff's story. Annie is not even her real name. In the poem's vowel-and-wound tissue of sounds, Goodison mines poetry's phonemic recursiveness and semantic ambiguity, particularly, and I'll just focus on one thing here, in her play on the words own, O-W-N, O, O-W-E, own. Though having been deprived of the ownership of her body, the enslaved girl can at least, in the civil trial by verse, own a name as a locus of identity. She's owner of a, we're told, harmony of vowels and consonants. 
the word own thus points in two contrastive directions as a signifier of both European legal rights to owning black bodies under colonialism and to poetic rights to self-ownership in the naming ritual of verse. Recounting Annie's abuse, the speaker makes an appeal to collect symbolic damages, transmuting an unjust history of owning into the nearly homophonic poetic legal demand for owing. Uh, Page um, 29 in the original, uh, toward the bottom, she says, so I come to say that history owes Annie, history owes Annie the brightest woolen blanket. She is owed to at least 12 years of sleep. At the poem's end, the speaker insists again that history owes Annie, lists uh, the damages sought, and concludes, Annie Pengeli O, this is the very ending of the poem, Annie Pengeli O, I say, history owe you. The poem's climactic juncture between two O sounds, achieved in part through creolization of the verb, again used in its uninflected West Indian form, encapsulates the relation this work's been developing between legal and poetic discourses. In the final lines, poetry's vocative O is directed to the dead Annie Pengeli, who can only hear this address by the poetic uh, fiction of apostrophe. Goodison has been trying to rhyme poetry with justice. The imaginative O, capital O, with the legal O, O-W-E. But the poem also points up the difference between, on the one hand, the coercive capacity of the law, which by virtue of being vested with the authority of the state can both legitimize enslavement and potentially could bring about material and social reparation for past injustices, right? It is so ordered. And on the other hand, the imaginative and rhetorical authority of poetry. Long dead Annie can benefit only in the sense of latter-day recognition of her abuse. Yet by its own procedures of representation, which include magical sonic junctures between antitheses and imaginative reparation for irreversible losses, poetry can aspire to address Annie Pengeli O, maybe even figuratively redress, history O U, past injustices and grievances, O Mrs. My Dear, that sometimes lie beyond the reach of the law. Although Goodison borrows rhetorical maneuvers from, from the law, her cross-cutting narratives, her echoic binding together of antitheses, forsake the discipline and one-dimensionality of legal argument for the polyphony of poetry's multi-perspectivism. And in the longer um, version of this, um, I, I won't go into this, but she mentions Lady Nugent here, uh, and it's a very interesting way, of, who's a historical figure, wrote a, a journal, 1801 to 1805, when she was staying as the governor's wife in um, uh, Jamaica, and um, she's alluded to here in part as a kind of sympathetic figure because uh, Lady Nugent, while she was part of the machinery of colonialism, was also quite sympathetic to and horrified by the condition of slaves uh, that she saw there. Um, and the poem, again, 
also contrary to the adversarial procedures of the courtroom, is itself shows itself to be sympathetic to the white mistress as being enslaved by patriarchy. Ironically, the poem's only use of the word slave or slavery enslaved here is for the white slave mistress and her condition of being uh, enslaved by, uh, basically, by her husband. Again, she's giving evidence to the other side here, right, if this is uh, meant to be a, a trial. She acknowledges that law and poetry share a great deal, even as she, like Philip, uses a legal language that ultimately turns uh, the law on its head. Postcolonial poetry sometimes returns to histories of, of unimaginable death and cruelty, making use of the genre's elasticity and multifariousness to reopen what may often have seemed a shut case. None of its sentences will be final verdicts that have the force of law, but if postcolonial poets ever approximate unacknowledged, unacknowledged legislators of the world, it may be by virtue of their ability to unlock silences and disclose what's been suppressed and restore a multidimensionality to the past, even while arguing with an almost legal purposiveness for the dignity and worth of lives lost to the systematic atrocities of colonialism. Poetry and song. For all the interconnections between poetry and law or between poetry and theory, poetry and song have long had a closer partnership as well as subtler differences. In the post-colonial world, the vigor of oral traditions, including song forms, has shaped a great deal of poetry, perhaps most notably in Africa and the African diaspora. Ghanaian, Kofi Awoner's um, poems based in Ewe funeral dirges, Ugandan Okot Pabitek's long poems based in Acholi songs, and so forth. Patience Agbabi, a London-born poet of Nigerian parentage, writes and performs poems often inspired not by indigenous African songs, but by rap. She adapts its insistent rapid-fire end and internal rhymes, its encyclopedic indexing of early, earlier forms, its quick syncopated rhythms, and self-reflexive wordplay. With one eye on these oral uh, traditions and another on English literary poetry, she maintains a reflective aesthetic distance from the musical form she draws on, tethering it to the page, separating it from techno-musical accompaniment, and fusing it with high literary diction and aesthetics. Agbabi's manifesto poem, titled initially Word and then Prologue, draws on both the rapper's boastful account of authorial prowess and the high literary Ars Poetica, seamlessly melding the two. Um, impressive performer of her, of her own work. And very hard act to follow, I must say, with the, uh, as I look down at the page and see, as the Roman Jakobson observes, <laughs> I'm reminded of the drabness of critical prose. But anyway, I'll do my best. <laughs> That's right, here we go. Uh, uh, so, as Jakobson observes, the reiterative figure of sound, which Gerard Manley Hopkins saw as the constitutive principle of verse, and which is even more pronounced in song, results from the emphasis on the, po the medium as message until sometimes the meaning is nearly eclipsed by sound, 
Here, its meaning is in tatters. A cross between Horatian instruction manual and rap boast, Ababi's poem indicates how poetic self-reflexivity can highlight not only the oral but also the graphic dimension of language, something that a literary rap can trade in but rap per se uh, cannot. Uh, you remember she says, now write it down letter by letter, loop the loops till you form a structure, do it again, 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 till it's a word picture, does this inspire, is your consciousness on fire, then let me take you higher. Wonderfully rip it, riffing there on the lyrics of 1969, song by Sly and the Family Stone. Uh, Bobby represents her address as inspired by poetry's embrace of the materiality of language, uh, foregrounded by phonetic and graphic repetitions that refuse subordination to the referential function. Rap poetry retrieves childhood play with words as material objects. And you're, we're made to think, I think, uh, or I always think of uh, Freud's uh, great work on jokes or, or Kristeva's uh, work, uh, analogous work, Let me ta- on the semiotic. Let me take you back to when you learned to walk, talk, words such as mama, dada, the second word, also the name of an artistic movement that foregrounded, of course, an artist's materials. Near rhymes, a frequent feature of rap, and Ababi's deft use of Wilfred Owen-like para-rhyme or double consonants and n-rhyme, friction, fraction, or earlier motion, mission, instances the rubbing together of word sounds that she commends to her audience as generative. Uh, calibrating poetics in relation to race, I got more skills than I got melanin, uh, drawing on rap savvy interpolation of contemporary technological references, as well as its wordplay and boastful self descriptions, she wittily fuses rap with Christian myth, ars poetica, soul lyrics, and calling herself Eve on an Apple Mac. This is a rap attack, so rich in onomatopoeia. I'll take you higher than the ozone layer, though wonderfully not to show favoritism toward one computer platform over another. She playfully continues, so give me word for Windows. Give me W times 3. I was so relieved as a boring Dell user uh, that I am. Wordplay proliferates as Ababi punningly demonstrates how word words can spawn other words. I'm living in syntax, she says, only to tumble into another pun on I am. Um, that's with a B. You only need two words to form a sentence. I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. Her I am's not accidentally pentametric. Bobby repossesses the basic metrical unit of English verse to sound out a cross-cultural declaration of identity. BBC Children's Television, Right Watch with Mother, Romantic Verse, Public Enemies, Political Rap are all cited as wellsprings of the very poem we're reading or hearing, which has indeed fused rap with childlike verbal playfulness and high art poetic self-nomination. Now, rap has many uh, different roots, among them spoken word poetry of the 60s and 70s, and so for a so-called performance poet to turn to rap as a poetic resource is in some sense to return the form to one of its sources. Intensely rhymed, mnemonically layered with wit, wordplay, and syllabic echoes, raps and oral poetry uh, and postcolonial poetry has frequently attempted to bend European literary traditions in the direction of a pre-colonial orality. But like other postcolonial poets in relation to other song forms, and there are many we could discuss, Agbabi concedes by her formal hybridization of rap's orality with literary verse that such postcolonial poetry in English 
though rooted in African orature, shouldn't be confused with some preliterate oral essence. It is a diasporic form shaped by African Americans and African Caribbeans and available to transnational refashioning by poets and musical artists from around the world. So finally, I know this isn't the Virgilian progress, but I guess there's a certain kind of progress in coming finally to poetry and prayer. We can all say amen at the end. Um, uh, My my last little section here. Um, Like poetry, and this is all dramatically compressed, obviously, uh, I hope raising many more questions that I'm answering. Like poetry and song, poetry and prayer have long nourished one another in many cultures close interrelations among hymns, psalms, and odes, for example, indicating the enmeshment between the liturgical and the literary. When postcolonial poets draw on prayer or address to the divine, they bring the energies of oral performance and sacral engagement into literary works, even as they often hold religion's truth claims at a measured distance. Because missionary Christianity marched across the world frequently hand-in-gloved with economic and military forces of European colonialism, postcolonial poets sometimes betray a vexed, if intimate, relation to Christian prayer. You know, for me, anyway, my favorite example of this is one that uh, uh, in a transnational poetics, there's that ex- wonderful example of Christopher Kikbo's um, Ibo uh, slash Catholic prayer before you, Mother Idota, which is kind of a, a prayer to Mother Mary at the same time that it's a prayer to um, an Ebo River goddess, um, wonderfully fusing those, or Brathwaite's Dies Irae, or Walcott's uh, Methodist hymns, ma- many examples of this. Um, not, not his Methodist, his playing on uh, that, those forms. Many of these poets more openly embrace non-Western devotional forms, Non-Christian prayer plays an important role in the work of postcolonial poets such as Okot um, and Okigbo, Kamal Brathwaite, and Ake Ramanujan. A Kashmiri Shia Muslim by origin, Aga Shahid Ali, also laces much of his poetry with prayers. Now, according to an Islamic proverb, to pray and to be Muslim are synonymous, and the Quran is sometimes regarded as a book of prayers. In everyday everyday Urdu speech, prayers of Arabic and Persian origin are part of the fabric of greetings, partings, thanks, and other such speech acts. When the Arabic phrase Arahim from the beginning of Quran finds its way into one of Ali's many ghazals, it's explained in a footnote, quote, the merciful, one of God's 99 names in Arabic. The traditional Muslim prayer begins, begin in the name of God, the beneficent, the merciful. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, a prayer that, um, incidentally, of course, in this part of the world, prefaces many daily tasks. Whenever you, I remember my father, when we start driving anywhere, it was a Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, you know, something you do. To bring Muslim prayer together uh, in, into the English language uh, poetic context is to attune a literary language long saturated with Christianity to the discursive experience of the Islamic world. Even so, Ali's poems could hardly be said to be orthodox prayers. He sees prayer not as a means to connect with the one and all merciful God, but as a performative rite that survives, uh, even in his case, non-belief, a vivid husk that outlives what it once contained. He asks in one ghazal, when even God is dead, what is life but prayer? And asserts in another, 
I believe in prayer and the need to believe, even the great nothing signifying God. Prayer and disbelief tumultuously intertwine in Ali's elegy. Yes, back to elegy. Had to bring it back around, of course. Surprise, surprise. Uh, In his elegy for his mother, Lennox Hill, in which he uh, recounts his mother's dream. If you, I won't read the whole thing, but if you glance at the um, second stanza there, a few, a couple lines into it, she was with diamonds being stoned to death. I prayed. If she must die, let it only be some dream. But there were times, mother, while you slept, that I prayed, saints, let her die. By dint of the canzone's sonic and imagistic repetition, and one of Ali's claims to fame was his amazing mastery of of that extremely difficult form, um, death is changed into diamonds and vice versa in part by word splitting and jamming. So too, fate is transformed into an object of longing, the poet praying for the death he can't prevent. Contemplating the return of his mother's body to Kashmir, he beseeches an inversely defined deity, O destroyer, let her return there, if just to die. Recalling his earlier play on die and diamonds, he prays near the poem's end, not for his mother's, but for her destroyer's death. Mother, I see a hand. Tell me it's not God's. Let it die. I see it. It's filling with diamonds. Please let it die. To stay the divine hand that will record a death, the poet paradoxically turns intercessory prayer inside out as prayer against the divine. Here a nightmarish figure who would stone or diamond his mother to death. Though the poet too seeks by wordplay to convert abject loss into the radiant permanence of diamonding. Now, despite Ali's resistances to Islamic orthodoxy, Shia prayers and rituals resonate through a long elegiac sequence he also wrote for his mother, an acting geographic movement, as that poem's titled, From Amherst to Kashmir, uh, and recalling uh, Ashura processions commemorating the grandson of the prophet Hussein's martyrdom, in which Ali had, uh, had witnessed mourners crying, praying, even wounding themselves in grief. Um, I saw these in southern Tehran when I was a, a kid, and I'm sure you've all seen these also on TV when, you know, the, in these processions, the mourners walk along and they whip themselves on their backs, sometimes let the blood flow pretty, pretty freely. Um, but just when we might begin to think Ali has uh, rejoined his Shia Muslim roots, the sequence repeats a prayer to a very different deity. Dark blue god, Don't cast me into oblivion. In the temples, all your worshippers are asleep. Now here Ali is recalling a bhajan, a Hindu devotional devotional song. And even as he quotes prayers from the Quran, such as, there is no God but God, la ilaha illallah, he also makes room in his elegiac sequence for prayers to Krishna, including an entire poem that recreates a quote, film bhajan found on a 78 RPM, uh, beginning, dark God, shine on me, you're all I have left. Nothing else, blue God, you're all I have. I won't let go, I'll cling on to your robe. 
he's kind of melding the bajan and the blues there. Um, Cross-gendering himself elsewhere in the sequence of Zainab, wailing for her beheaded brother, Hussein, in the central Shia story, Ali also adopts the voice of Radha, Krishna's primary consort, swearing her devotion and beseeching the blue god Krishna not to abandon her. The poem's interweaving of Shiism with Hinduism allows Ali to place his grief within meaning-giving narratives that nevertheless, in combination, undo the absolute priority of any religious system. His modernist juxtaposition of prayers turns them into the poetic after-images of prayers. Uh, And uh, in the book, I have a long shtick on Ali's relationship to T.S. Eliot and uh, much though we often think of postcolonial poets as writing back against and to the West, um, there's an interesting kind of partnership there between postcoloniality and, and modernism. In the name of the merciful begins a poem titled simply God, translating part of the most basic Muslim prayer. But by poem's end, the mourner meditating on his mother's death turns this prayer on its head. In no one's name but hers, I let night begin. Ali draws on Shia Muslim prayer, but his insistence on his mother's priority in the naming ritual of verse and his trans-religious poetics also distinguishes poetry from, obviously, monotheistic prayer. So, in conclusion, postcolonial poetry is, in short, interlaced with prayer, both foreign and indigenous, but irreducible to it. Even poems that seem close to prayer in their intensity and address nevertheless put devotional speech acts under inspection, interrupt them with poetic devices such as dramatic enchantment or shifting addressee or dialogically juxtaposed discrepant religious systems. Still, postcolonial poetry, by virtue of its apostrophic stance and figurative richness, is perhaps especially well-suited to incorporating and pluralizing prayer, playing on re-examining it. Similarly, postcolonial poetry is especially saturated with, even as it marks some distance from, the rhythms, rhymes, and oral exuberance of song. Song forms such as calypso, reggae, rap, help energize postcolonial poetry, although Okot Pabitek's so-called songs are really meta-songs. Jean Bintabriz's poems poetically frame and incorporate song, and Patience Agbabi's high-low mix and insistence on languages of visual materiality on the page all separate these poems from songs, just as I think one could argue Blanks and Hughes's or Sterling Brown's blues poems are blues-enriched but aren't quite blues songs. Verbal precision, testimony, long memory to awareness of precedent these and other commonalities sometimes make law a shadow discourse in relation to which postcolonial poetry defines its imperative to remember, reconfigure, possibly even repair the past. Poets such as Goodison and Philip piggyback on the law while exploiting poetry's non-legalistic polyphony, incantatory recursiveness, self-reflexivity, and graphic arrangements on the page to tell and yet untell, enunciate and yet interrogate stories about slavery and colonialism. Postcolonial poetry shares with postcolonial theory a preoccupation with linguistic alienation and collective memory. But poetry such as Phillips, more than theory and perhaps even fiction, formally enacts these concerns in the visualization of intertextuality and interdiscursivity on the page and an aggressive verbal punning and fracturing that demonstrate both the postcolonial subject's losses and capacities. And if I had time, I'd go into 
uh, other, you know, obviously there are many other discourses, interdiscursive uh, moments one could look at. I, I've been writing a lot about poetry in the news recently, and Louise Bennett, uh, uh, if you know her work, is a, a great example of that. Now, this is not to hypothesize some pure generic essence name, poetry, in contradistinction to the news or theory, song or law or religious chant. Indeed, the parsing of postcolonial poems into almost theoretical poems, quasi-legal poems, semi-song-like poems, meta-prayerful poems, and anti-news news poems helps disaggregate poetry poetry into subgenres defined by the intersections with extra-literary discourses, revealing the artificiality and permeability of generic lines between poetry and its others. So, in a phrase, poetry is ineluctably intergeneric. Although much critical uh, work has explored the intersections between poetry and the so-called sister arts, such as painting and music, and or more recently with the electronic and digital media, or has analyzed the evolution of discrete poetic genres such as elegy, people like me, and the sonnet as sui generis, more needs to be done, it seems to me, uh, to parse the complex dialogic interrelations between poetry and its close and close discursive cousins. And just to go back to Bakhtin one last time, despite uh, that great critic's uh, theorization of poetry as monologic and exclusionary, quoting him, suspended from any mutual interaction with alien discourse, um, uh, allusion to alien discourse, quoting him further, destroying all traces of social heteroglossia and diversity of language. Postcolonial poetry, and maybe poetry more generally, while perhaps neither as rich in socio-historical mimesis as the news, or the novel, nor as analytically astute as theory, nor as enforceable as law, nor as musically and orally resonant as song, nor as devotionally pitched as liturgy, borrows from its generic others to create fresh formal amalgamations that make it new. By means of the strategies transnationally absorbed into poetry and adapted from non-poetry, poets help fashion powerful new ways to trace and reshape the contours of postcolonial memory, language, and identity. Although postcolonial poetry has often been defined by its content, its distinctiveness, that is, its distinctiveness, postcolonial poetry is also to be located in its aesthetic specificity, even if the specificity is always bleeding and blurring into other forms. Postcolonial poets take take from and then send their works back into the larger universe of colliding and ever-mutating genres and discourses. Thank you. That was Jahan Ramazani speaking at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, on October 26, 2010. Jahan Ramazani is the author of several books of poetry theory and criticism, including A Transnational Poetics, published in 2009. He is also the editor of the most recent edition of the Norton Anthology of Modern and Contemporary Poetry. This program was sponsored by the Alice Kaplan Institute for the Humanities, the Poetry and Poetics Workshop of the Department of English at Northwestern University, and the Center for the Writing Arts. The recording was provided by Chicago Public Radio's Chicago Amplified program. You can hear this and other events recorded by Chicago Amplified at wbez.org. 
At poetryfoundation.org, you'll find articles about poets and poetry, an online archive of more than 9,000 poems, and other audio programs to download. I'm Ed Herman. Thanks for listening to Poetry Lectures from poetryfoundation.org.